Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I pity the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! It's Fizz 5, Orange Fizz's new flagship podcast, where we break down the five most important topics per week in the Syracuse sports world. Alongside John Eats, I'm Ian Unsworth with you on Friday, March 11th. It's about 10.50 a.m. And John, we were Fizz radio partners beforehand. It's, it's not changing. You're still stuck with us. Not at all. Yeah, and I'm stuck with you, too, which kind of sucks, but that's ah. all right. All right, well, let's get into what, what really needs to be discussed here is the Syracuse men's basketball season coming to, uh, I don't want to say a close, but it's a close. They should not make the NIT. This team has a losing record now, finishing off the year at 16-17, and 17, the first Jim Beheim squad to ever do such a thing. But they didn't go down without a fight. The season ended yesterday, an 88-79 loss to Duke in the quarterfinals of the ACC tournament. I don't think anybody thought Syracuse was going to lose by fewer than 10 points to Duke. Yeah, not at all. That was a very valiant effort and without Buddy Beheim too. I mean, the season ended, of course, when the game ended, but really the season ended when Buddy Beheim was suspended because when that happened, Syracuse had no chance coming in. Even with Buddy, without him, everyone thought they'd lose by at least 20, 30 points, but they played better against Duke the thir- in the third game without Buddy Beheim. So I'm sitting right here and I'm thinking – Darn. I mean, was it addition by subtraction? Now, obviously it was one game and basketball is 30 games in a season. So, you know, and it, coach Bam wouldn't have just set buddy Bayheim the entire season just to experiment with this because he doesn't like to experiment whatsoever to begin with. But uh, yeah, that lineup they had yesterday really worked. And that, I think that was the best that we've seen Syracuse all year. Crazy to think about, especially after yesterday, the blow Florida state out of the water. And Buddy Beheim didn't do all that much. I mean, he was kind of a he was a non-factor. While Cole Swider and J- uh, Jimmy really ran the show, and it was Jimmy yesterday as well. Twenty-eight points, a career orange high, orange career high overall, overall career high. Something, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, I mean, Jimmy in the second half could not miss. He was six of yeah. nine for behind the arc. JG three in the first half could not miss. And Cole Swider was 4 of 15, but he hit some big shots. And also have to give a big shout-out to Symir Torrance as well, who had 11 assists. And yeah. all those guys played the full – I mean, Cole Swider, it says 38 on the box score, but all those guys played the full 40. Yeah, I think Cole Swider needed to play the full 40 because the minute he went to the bench and John Jacques came in, <laughs> everything went to – I can't say the word on air. Everything went to crap. John Jacques came in for two minutes – Duke went on a big run, and he picked up a flagrant foul, which kind of could, it could have turned the game right there if Duke shot the three ball a little bit better in the second half. They shot the three spectacularly all game, but not exactly up to the standard that they were in the previous two matchups against Syracuse. Um, but Cole Swider had to be that guy. He really wasn't. Uh, really, it was Jimmy Beheim and Joe Girard that picked up the slack for him, but he, it just kind of demonstrated that little stretch there in midway through the second half, how critical he was to this team. What he couldn't do is pick up fouls and be in foul trouble, and he found himself in that foul trouble, and it completely changed his game. But it was impressive to not only see Coach Beheim have the cojones to put him back in the game with those four fouls, and then Swider play clean down the stretch to at least give this team a chance because 
if Swider sat on the bench at that 12 minute mark until say the four minute mark, Duke would have won by 20 points. I think overall it proves that Jimmy Bayheim, Joe Girard, and Cole Swider can compete at this level, which was a question that everybody always had all year. Jim Bayheim said that Jimmy last time, that Duke game was just too big for him and he wasn't ready for it. And he rose to the challenge on Thursday. And I think it's great to see these guys, especially Simir and Joe, who are going to be back next year and probably starting at the one and two. You're running out two six foot three guys. I mean, probably calling Joe six foot three is very generous. And these guys are going to have to be your offensive leaders at some point in time. So especially with Torrance, who had never been assigned this sort of workload before and distributed the ball really, really well. I mean, he was two of nine from the field. You don't expect him to score. There were times when you could see his obvious lack of a jump shot getting in the way. But I think next year, if he even has a sliver of a three-pointer, Syracuse's offense is going to be, first of all, wide open again, as it should be. Two, they'll be able to push the pace, which is what SU does really well and didn't get to do a lot of this year. And overall, they'll just have someone reliable at the helm because it doesn't seem like Saimir is on this Joe wave of up and down, up and down. He seems steady. Yeah, he's been steady all year. He comes in off the bench, racks up the assist, doesn't turn it over a whole lot. He's not really a scorer. The only way that he really will score is in transition or off the dribble. But if Saimir Torrance had somewhat of a threatening jump shot element to his game, Syracuse would have beaten Duke yesterday by 15 because he was open, wide open, so many times. Duke was leaving him open, but he's not a three-point shooter. Every time he catches the ball, he's looking for that next pass, which is you know a reason why he racked up 11 assists yesterday. He doesn't cut looking to catch and shoot. He cuts to take a pass, draw another defender, and find the wide open guy, whether it be a shooter on the outside or Frank Anselm down low. And it really worked out well. And not to mention, uh, he's so athletic on the defensive end. A absolute plus over there with Buddy Beheim on the bench, having Joe Girard in, Simir Torrance in, and then being able to use Jimmy and, and Cole on the wings as well. Um, I think Simir Torrance should start next year. He definitely deserves it. He has such an impactful presence on both ends of the floor. On the topic of defense, Syracuse pulled out some some wild tricks yesterday. They played a little sliver of man-to-man. They played triangle and two. I don't know if they played box and one, but they were breaking out all sorts of things, and Beheim said it after the game. The triangle and two had the two men on A.J. Griffin and Mark Williams to stop them up and force Wendell Moore, Jeremy Roach, and Trevor Keels, guys who hadn't really done a whole lot against the Orange, over the past season to make threes and Wendell Moore and Jeremy Roach eventually did find the bucket. Moore had 26 Roach 19, but overall Duke seemed really flustered in the first couple of minutes when SU brought out that unique style of defense. I'm sure coach K wasn't ready for it. And that's, you know, you throw the, throw the one final curveball at your best friend on the other opposite sideline. Cool thing to see from Coach Beheim. But, John, do you think this is something that continues? Because we've heard the rumblings about man-to-man, different defenses. And next year with the freshmen coming in, I think it is the time to experiment. Yeah, I think you could. I'm just hesitant to dive and dive in, into that and buy into that because I don't know if it was maybe just a, a game 
specific scenario against Duke because Paolo Bancaro was just carving up the zone early on, drawing two and three defenders, finding wide open three-point shooters in the corner. And then Syracuse started playing that man-to-man hybrid, the, the little triangle thing they did that Coach Bayam said they haven't used in 25 years. And yeah, they weren't ready for it, and it definitely worked. But you have to have the personnel to be able to do that. So if you have the guys you think could run that in this next recruiting class and you could further train the guys already on the team to run that, then sure, you could certainly use it next year. Um, I'm a little hesitant to buy into that, though, because, again, I'm not sure if this was just a Duke thing or if it's something that could work against every team that you play. I think also it served to alleviate the the depth issues as well. That's another reason why, first of all, you're running zone in the first place. And then also you're throwing in these mismatched defenses because you can't have your bigs, Swider and I mean, Swider and Jimmy Beheim were part of that triangle. Can't have them picking up fouls. But John, let's transition a little bit from the Duke game, which everybody's kind of taken in and digested right now. And I don't think anybody after watching yesterday's performance could be disappointed in how this team went out. Uh, You can't call it a blaze of glory, but it was, it was pretty darn close. However, the season as a whole, I think is a massive disappointment and it's not absolutely not because of, I would say it's not because of the lack of cohesion from this team. There was no infighting. Everybody was always on the same page, but just to not meet the expectations after what was an amazing run in 2021, I think really stings, especially with one of the most loved players leaving this program. It's pretty simple. It's the same story as the football season. There's a stat that was shown during the Duke game or Florida State game, one of those two. There were six games this year in which Syracuse was leading at one point in the game by 10 or more points, and they lost all six of those games. It's the same with football. This team was good enough to make the NCAA tournament. This team was good enough to be a top six team in the ACC. If this team beat Duke yesterday, they would, I think they would have won the whole ACC tournament. That's how talented they are. They just couldn't finish down the stretch. They couldn't finish to start the season against Colgate, and they couldn't finish to end the season against Miami. So it was really just an open book, closed book, full circle trip for us, up and down roller coaster ride. And at the end of it all, it's just a disappointment. And you really wonder why this team didn't put it together. Because the talent's there. I, I think one thing that I always came back to was, who is the closer? Buddy Bayheim against Indiana really had his moments down the stretch, and especially in that double overtime period. But other than that, like there were never any games where guys were taking putting the team on their back down the stretch. I mean, the Swider UNC game, yes, but like they lost. You know what I mean? So I just I just didn't get enough of that. And like the Joe Girard late shot clock, I'm gonna run it down myself and run my own offense. Just like why? like So that those sort of things, and I think some of it was the team just not having that alpha dog. We didn't, I don't think Buddy Beheim showed up as that alpha dog enough this year. But also, I, I think some of it has to be like, like, Jim, dude, like, look at your team. Let's figure it out for next year. Why, why couldn't they inbound the ball? Why were there so many turnovers in the final two minutes? Why do these things keep happening? And with that group that's coming back, that has experienced all those late game failures, you have to put it on them. It's not going to be on Chris Bunch or Justin Taylor to control the ball down the stretch or make the big shot at the end of the game. It's going to be on Joe Girard. So he's got to get that right. 
Yeah, and he certainly showed some signs of being able to be that guy today, but that's the thing with him and really a lot of players in this team is consistency. But one thing I do want to say about the season is you can't really account for nor foresee injuries happening. Yeah, If Jesse Edwards doesn't get injured, I think this team does end up making the tournament. They were certainly trending in that direction. And when that happened, it pretty much just killed him because he was so improved from last season to this season, and there was no potent option behind him. I mean, Frank Anselm did what he could, but he wasn't ready to be a starting center. Barama Sidibe did what he could, but he, he's not in a position to be a high-level starting five center with the injuries he's had and whatnot. So this season could have gone a whole lot of different ways. What say you win those games you were winning by 10-plus points? What if Jesse Edwards – uh, didn't get injured and they continued to roll on that little hot streak they had and maybe won or split in those last four games against the, the top four teams in the ACC. We could be talking about a team that's getting ready for a first round matchup in the NCAA tournament right now, or potentially a semifinal matchup in the ACC tournament here today. So it's just frustrating. It's disappointing. Um, you know, you can talk about all the what ifs and could be's, but at the end of the day, it's a team that finished below 500 for the first time in Bayheim's era. And it's a team that did not meet expectations this season. Last thing before we move off of basketball, John, give me one bold prediction from for this Syracuse basketball offseason. It's a great question. Um, hmm. you re- do you want mine first? And then, well, yeah, you, you, you go ahead. I got a couple ideas. All right. I hate to be the Debbie Downer here, but my bold prediction is that Frank Anselm transfers. Okay. And He's worked his butt off. You can really tell that, you know, it's coming really slow for him, but he's trying to get better. But I think the amount of heat that he's taken from Jim Beheim over the past two years and also not having an opportunity to start when other programs are surely trying to reach him, trying to give him that opportunity to be their number one guy. I just think that combination is is a toxic one. And I hate to say it, but that's kind of where we are in this portal environment where guys can go at the drop of a hat, Anselm like ref, he sent out some cryptic tweets last year and then didn't end up leaving the program. But with Jesse coming back with Peter Carey starting to, you know, make his way through the wings. I, I think there isn't a great spot for Frank Anselm to play. And I think Jim Beheim's not going to let up on him if he does play. So I think, he might find some greener pastures elsewhere or at least some, you know, less negative ones at that. He could, but he still serves a vital role for this team. Like the experience he gained this year with Edwards being out with injury is so crucial. So next season, if Edwards gets into foul trouble, you can throw Frank Anselm into the game. And he's a guy that's played in these big games before. He knows what he's doing out there. Not to say he didn't before, but he's a whole lot more comfortable now. So I think there's certainly still a pitch for Beheim to give Anselm to keep him here. But if he does leave, I understand because Edwards is a year older than him. Two years? I think it's one year older than him. Might be two. Yeah, just one. So, you know, that's that's pretty tight. That's a tight timeline. So if there's a, if there's an opportunity out there for him to go somewhere and get that immediate playing time, you know, all power to him. But, again, here's the thing. Is Frank Anselm a high-level college basketball center? I don't think so. He's not a factor in the offensive end. All he can do is get your rebounds, which is certainly important. But you like a guy that could do a lot of different things. And on the defensive end, he's not a terrific rebounder. In his big rebounding games this year, he's had more offensive rebounds than defensive rebounds. So that's something I'll bounce back to you with. My prediction, though, for this offseason is I think Coach Beheim hits the portal and brings in a guy like Cole Swider, not exactly a forward, but a guy that's a two or a three 
that can shoot the ball. Because what if some of these freshmen don't pan out like Benny Williams did it this season? Not to say he won't in the future, but what if they're not those instant impact players that he's hoping that they can be for this team? Because they certainly need one. I think he's going to go to the portal, find a guy that shot the ball very well, that can be a two-way player for this team to you know give them some uh, boost right away. And of course, we have no idea who's going to be in the transfer portal in about two weeks. So yes, wild things could be happening over the college basketball landscape again. John, the only pushback I'm going to give you on Frank Anselm is that it doesn't matter about him going to a high-level D1 school. I mean, Bobby Brass, he, tra- trans- he, he transferred to Charlotte. But yeah. you just want to go somewhere where you can play, yeah. and you want to go somewhere where the coach is going to be on your behind all the time if you make a mistake. So those are yeah. my two points for that. All right, so that's the Syracuse basketball season. I think we've hit the, the main topics, and I think most people know how to feel about this team going into the 2022-23 season. But, John, the Syracuse women's hockey team is – in the NCAA postseason in Ohio State right now, uh, they just got trounced by Quinnipiac yesterday. It was four to nothing, the loss. But they do play OSU today. But yesterday, nobody showed up for SU. Abby Malotny, not even a point on the scoreboard. Neither Madison Primo. Yeah. What What does the Orange need to do to get things right in the postseason? Uh, well, coming into that Quinnipiac game yesterday, I thought it'd be a low scoring battle because the Bobcats have one of the best goalies in the nation and they couldn't get anything by her. Like Syracuse had plenty of chances right in front of goal, point blank range shots, but she stopped everything. And there were even some plays where she would make the save. Quinnipiac would get out in transition. They would score right after that's how they scored two of their goals yesterday. I thought Syracuse would need to score on the power play. And they had some opportunities in the first period and early on in the second, but uh, they didn't convert on any of those. And this is a Syracuse team in which a fourth of its goals this year came on the power play. So that's how they were going to stay in this game. They couldn't get it done in that aspect. Uh, Quinnipiac's goaltending was just phenomenal the entire game. And it was pretty evenly played. It was kind of just the bounces of the puck went into the way of the Bobcats. They were in the right place at the right time. And at the end of the day, Syracuse just ran out of gas. Yeah, and the other thing that I point to is – uh face off Syracuse got pretty much dominated yeah. and it was a it was 26 to 15 Bobcats in that area so SU playing OSU tomorrow that is the number one team in the nation Ohio State women's ice hockey with a chance to bounce SU out of the NCAA tournament John for those of you who, for those of the uh, our listeners that don't know much about women's hockey who is going to be the key for Syracuse if the Orange do make a tournament run one player one player, I think I think it has to be Abby Malotny. She's the team's leader. It's kind of an easy answer, but she's the team's leader in scoring and points. But she does so much for this team, even on the power play. She's the distributor. In the CHA tournament, which SU won for the second time in school history, in the first game against RIT, she scored all three goals. So in a game in which the team is not playing well collectively, she can single-handedly boost this squad to a victory. Um, but I think it's going to need to be a team effort if SU wants to take that Ohio State because it's a one seed in the tournament. And again, if they go on the power play, they need to take advantage there. So there you have it. Syracuse trying to stay alive in NCAA tournament play. But I think overall, a very successful SU Weiss season because the Orange after no postseason in 2020 and a rocky 2021 have gotten things on the right foot. From one sort of from one spring, well, winter spring sport to another, Syracuse men's lacrosse in action on Sunday 
against Johns Hopkins. And this is an embattled team led by Gary Gate, a squad that's gone through a lot of ups and downs in the early season, three losses to three ranked opponents, and then finally getting the ship right against Hobart last weekend, keeping the Krause Simmons trophy in the, in the Salt City. Careful. Because Hobart and Syracuse are both in the three one five, right? <laughs> yeah, I caught myself. Caught myself. Yep. Um, no, I mean it was it was a good win. It was one they certainly needed, but it still wasn't pretty. Like, yeah. Syracuse should have won this game by much more than two goals. They let Hobart stick around. I, I agree with you there, and the Orange offense didn't have like the turnover numbers for Syracuse don't look that bad, which is one thing I was checking out the other day. Syracuse is ninth in the nation and fewest turnovers per game. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the SU offense turns the ball over like 30 times. Like watching yeah. a game, the amount of passes that Syracuse misses, the amount of miscommunications there are on offense, it seems like this team just can't put it together. And I don't know why that is because Pat Marsh is still there. But it, it's I, I can't blame the defense. I mean, well, you can blame the defense, obviously, from a micro standpoint, but from a macro standpoint, I think the offense puts the defense in a really tough spot sometimes because the orange have sucked in defending transition and it's just not, it's, it's not something you can do consistently when your offense isn't holding the ball and keeping possession. It's not even exactly the black and white turnovers, like a 20 yard step down shot that goes high to high, right into a goalie stick is not considered a turnover. That's considered a shot, right? But in those situations, it allows your opponent to get a quick outlet pass and get going in transition. So that's what you saw Virginia do. That's what you saw Maryland do. That's what you saw Army do. So giving the uh, giving your opponent opportunities to get out in transition like that against the defense that's already weak is not a recipe for success. That's how UVA scored more than half of its goals, which is getting out in transition, getting four on threes, getting three on twos, and easy dunks. So I think the, the offense needs to do a better job with shot selection and execution. And then on top of that, getting back in transition defense, there's times in which um, the opponent will break out and Tucker Dordovic or another attackman will follow the guy that's carrying the ball up the field and they'll just stop at midfield. It's obviously you got to stay on sides, right? But what I'm getting at here is if you're the first guy back on defense, I don't care what position you play, you got to continue with the play to negate that transition opportunity. Didn't really see it a whole lot against uh, Hobart, from the statesman. In fact, we saw Syracuse take more advantage in transition of those opportunities, and it's a big reason why they won the game and really got things going in the second half. Um, but on top of that, this offense needs to do something in the fourth quarter. We saw the statesman switch to his zone defense in the fourth, just like Army did in the previous game, and they held SU from a six-on-six half-field offense standpoint, scoreless in the final frame. Syracuse's offense was, yes, scoreless against Hobart. Or actually, no. Well, Brendan Curry they, had that, they like, scored. They never. scored four goals. What I'm saying is, in a settled six-on-six six situation, yes, exactly. they didn't score a single goal. Yeah, Brendan Curry had the only offensive player, quote-unquote, goal with 20 seconds left, and the net was empty. An and yes, yeah. they went scoreless against Army in the fourth. Uh, Syracuse just has not been it in crunch time. It seems like after the middle of the third quarter, the Orange run out of gas constantly. And that's mm-hmm. that's not a good theme going up against Hopkins, who, of course, unless you're living under a rock, uh, you know that Dave Petromala is making his return to Homewood. And this is going to be one of the, well, it's the first time that Petromala has put, coached against Hopkins, but it's pretty much a repeat of the Hopkins defense for many 
of the JHU attackers, guys like Joey Epstein, Connor DeSimone, these upperclassmen who are leading the Hopkins offense now are playing against the defense that they faced every day. Yeah, and it's a defense that's really struggled this year. And the point of weakness has really been in the short stick defensive midfield position, I think. But that position, I thought, played pretty well against Hobart. So we'll see if that momentum can kind of carry over. Um, but like I was saying before, the last thing you can do in this game is set your defense up for failure, not success, by letting Hobart, or rather Johns Hopkins, get out in transition and get opportunities that way. So it's a very good Blue Jays attack. And this offense or defense rather has struggled in a six on six scenario all season. So I think that might be the key to the game. I think the key to the game is Owen Siebel. How's that? Because Tucker Dordovic and Brendan Curry are going to do their things. We, we, everybody knows that, but Siebel's been that up and down guy when he's hot, or at least when he's getting a fair share of the ball, the offense works really well. And there are multiple threats everywhere, but when Siebold kind of becomes non-existent, when he gets a long stick and can't break free with that patented swim dodge from behind cage, it's the Syracuse offense just turns into hero ball. If Owen Siebold isn't cooking, the Syracuse offense is not cohesive. So I think if Syracuse tries to play hero ball and Hopkins, they're having a down year just like SU, but again, plenty of talent on that team. If SU tries to play hero ball, it's, it's simply not going to work. Didn't see a whole lot of that against Hobart. In fact, the mm. ball movement and the facilitation was very good, but that's also a Hobart defense that's not very good to begin with. Yeah. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. So those kind of plays may not be available against Johns Hopkins. Another key to the game, I think, is stay out of the freaking penalty box, man. Mm. Syracuse had, I think, six penalties. Six penalties. Hobart scored on five of those. And on top of that, Jacob Fopp had two penalties himself because he picked up three different faceoff violations in either mm. half. Yes, both halves. So you, you can't do that. Because the last time, before Hobart did it, the last time a team scored five or more extra man goals against Syracuse was Hopkins back in 2003. So don't repeat history. Syracuse and Hopkins going at it on Sunday at 4. If you want to take a break from a selection Sunday, tune in to some SU men's lacrosse. Last but not least, spring football is cracking in the 3 run 5 We're seeing practice videos every day. And it's, it's not a ton to make. It's not exactly you know, stuff that's going to blow your mind. It's the Garrett Schrader end zone work. They're doing a lot of red zone Heisman. stuff. That's how they, that's how they open up uh, their media availability every day. The, the viewing session always opens with red zone scheming and then some individual drills, saw some one-on-ones the other day. Anything that stuck out to you, John, the Dan Valaris, the CJ Hayes of the world. Well, I got two things to start. First of all, I'm glad they're working on red zone offense because they've been the worst red zone offense team in the ACC the last two years. Um, and also, did you know Devon Cooper is still on the team? <laughs> the slot wide receiver? I swear, this dude was like a 60-year senior last year. I don't know where he's getting these extra years of eligibility, but shoot, I'll take one if he has any more. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, no, I've been pretty, pretty excited with what I've seen. Obviously, again, you can't put a whole lot of stock in this kind of stuff. But uh, I've seen a lot of those transfers, Braylon Oliver, um, Elijah Clark from Louisville and Rutgers, respectively, out in the field and practicing. I uh, haven't heard anything about injuries too much, like serious injuries. I know sometimes that happens in spring ball. So that's kind of the key for SU this spring is just to, you know, continue to play physical, but avoid those injuries because with a team that's already so low in depth and talent in some areas, the last thing you want to do is lose one of your star players. You know why we haven't heard anything about injuries, John? 
because SU athletics is not allowing media to report on injured players. So the veil of silence that has come with Dino Babers' tenure is getting even thicker. And we as media members will be blinded until game day when uh, inevitably Chris Elmore misses four more games with, with a sprained ankle. Well, I saw him walking around in Falk College the other day, so I think he's okay for right now. All right. Any, okay, one, one last thing. What's the biggest position battle you're looking at right now in spring ball? Good question. Um, Uh, you could go quarterback, but I don't think there's a position battle to be had there. I think it's Garrett Schrader's job. What I'm most intrigued about is the battle at safety. So you got the guys like Braylon Oliver come in, Elijah Clark, but you have Jason Simmons back. You have Eric Coley back. Shahar Carter hopefully is back from injury. He barely played last year. Um, that's a position that kind of struggled last year, especially in that think, – think about that Wake Forest game, a team that really had a potent downfield passing offense. Uh, when the corners weren't having their best games, Garrett Williams, Deuce Chestnut, or Adrian Cole is no longer playing for this team. The safeties had to be uh, kind of a security blanket, and they kind of failed to do that in some situations. So I'm curious to see who will start at the safety spots. Will it be Coley, the veteran? Will it be Simmons, who played a lot last year after transferring from Mexico State? Or will it be one of these talented transfers that are coming in? What about you? I'm really interested to see what happens at wide receiver. There's a pretty clear number one. It's Courtney Jackson. Yeah. And then and slot receiver. Yeah. After right. that, you don't really have a true X and Z. I mean, Anthony Quilly was very quiet and you've got talented youngsters like Amari Hatcher and Ronde Gadsden. And then CJ Hayes is kind of a, a wild card as well. Transfer from Michigan state who didn't do a whole ton. So which one of these guys is really ready to emerge, to step up, um, I mean, we didn't see much from either of the sophomores last season. So I'm waiting for one of those guys to really grab that opportunity and, and run with it because I don't think Anthony Quilly has been out anything close to outstanding. Yeah. I think Damian Alford's another guy I got to keep an eye on. Yeah. Uh, yeah there's I so many bodies him. in that wide receiver room that it's easy to forget about a couple. You also have Amari Hatcher, Aronde Gadsden, two guys that played a little bit as true freshman last year. But uh, Alford is an absolute athlete. I think. Dino called him Bambi last year. Yeah. I won't get into that, but uh, he's like six foot five, 215, and he runs like a gazelle, man. I think he's primed for a breakout year. Yeah. He made that game winning catch against Virginia Tech, yep. and that, that was probably the best moment of the SU football season. That also had a big field goal. touchdown against SU's biggest rival, U Albany. So, yeah. <laughs> there you have it, folks. The, the Orange and Great Danes getting it on every single year. Well, this actually, this year, it's Wagner. This, the Seahawks come to the dome for a yeah, I cannot wait for that 50, one. 52 to seven thrashing just one, one per year for Dino Babers and then conference play gets going, but oh. that's it for fizz five for John Eads and Ian Unsworth. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next week. And that's your fizz five. Listen next week, subscribe, rate and review. This has been an orange fizz production.